Mary Beth is a dear, dear sister here in our church, and uh, watching uh, the, her, her testimony there, it reminds me of when she had this uh, cancer diagnosis. Uh, sometime after it, I called her and just asked her how she was doing, and she said, I'm, you know, I'm doing really well, and she said, you know, the Bible says that we're all going to suffer, and now it's my turn, and I, was, I just remember being like, like, I'm the pastor calling you, and here you are encouraging me with truth that you're living by in a real trial. And so uh, she's a, uh, a very dear sister. We encourage you to pray for her as her trial uh, continues. But it's a, an appropriate introduction to our text today in Romans 8. And I'd like to begin with a series of questions. These are not questions that I want you to respond to. Uh, so consider these rhetorical questions. How many of you like your body? How many of you look at your body and you groan a little? How many of you have aches and pains you didn't used to have? How many of you are better looking this week than you were last week? And I would hasten to add that uh, denial is a river in Egypt, okay? I'm going to continue. How many of you view your body as part of God's saving plan for your future? How many of you view eternity as living with a glorified version of your present body? How many of you view your future as in a perfect body, in a perfect place, with a perfect Savior? And how many of you would like me to explain why I'm asking all these questions? And this one you can respond to. Yes, please. Okay. All right. Well, our text here in Romans is going to make clear why I'm asking uh, these questions. Uh, but part of it is that I'm concerned today that we have amongst us some unintentional heretics. And by unintentional, I mean that it's, you haven't purpose to uh, deny what the Bible says, but somehow over time, teachings are just sort of conclusions that you've come to. You are not actually living out gospel truth. You're actually viewing the world in the future heretically, unbiblically. What do I mean by that? Well, it is a heresy to believe that the material world is inherently evil. Otherwise, Jesus didn't actually come in a body. It is heretical to believe or to not believe in a physical resurrection of the body. Otherwise, Jesus wasn't resurrected. It is a heresy to believe that God saves our souls but not our bodies. Why? Because there's huge sections of Scripture that argue for the fact that God saves our bodies as well. And so I wonder if today you might be an unintentional heretic. And if so, I've got a great word for you today, and really for all of us who live in a body, and I'm pretty sure that is indeed all of us. So what I'm hoping today to do is to expunge these unintentional heresies and to free us up, because really the truth should set us free today, to free us up to be full-blooded earthlings and to understand that our future is an earthling existence and that this is the best news that we could hear. Now, we were introduced to this in Romans 8 last week. As uh, Romans 8, the text said this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And what we saw last week is that when God, when God cursed Adam and Eve and God cursed the ground, it wasn't merely the ground itself, but all of creation that came under a curse. And of course, uh, this included death, death for Adam and Eve, but death in the animal world, death throughout the cosmos. Now violence comes in and pollution and disease and nasty bugs like mosquitoes and the flu bug, which many of our people have been dealing with. Why do, you, why do you feel the way that you do when you have the flu bug? Because God cursed the earth. Would that our young people kind of got this, and when they go to the doctor and the doctor says, here's why you feel bad, you say, actually, no, I feel bad because God cursed the earth. Indeed, it is. So we saw then that when Jesus died on the cross, to remove, he removed the curse and typically we talk about that being the curse of our sins, and that's the focus of the Bible. But we come to find out that Jesus also conquered the curse of God upon co the cosmos. And that the cosmos is waiting, it says on tiptoes, waiting for final redemption when it can become all that God intended it to be. Because of the curse, it's not what it used to be. And because of redemption, it's not what it's going to be. It is what it is right now, not all that it could be. And so the text says that creation groans and knows that someday it's glory. And Paul continues this groan to glory theme and applies it to our physical bodies. Listen to what he says now in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, as we eagerly, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the resurrection of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. No hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. May God bless his word as we take it apart now and seek to understand what it means. So creation groans. But here it says that we also are groaning. We are groaning inwardly. Now what groan is he talking about here? What are, what are our groans? Our groans are when we experience the dissonance between the world that we live in and the world that we are waiting to come. As we experience in this world the results of the curse and the brokenness and the trials and the suffering and the pain, but anticipating a time when those will no longer be part of the program. We groan inwardly as we live with the reality of the world and we wait for the glory of the next. So we groan. We groan in our diseases. We groan in our pains. We groan that our marriage isn't what it should be. We groan that our government isn't what it should be. We groan that our children is, are not what we hoped they would be. All of these things are times where Christians have this inward groan, this tension. One guy says it this way, our lives consist of groans. We groan because of the ravages that sin makes in our lives and in the lives of those we love. Also, we groan because we see possibilities that are not being captured and employed. And then we groan because we see gifted people who are wasting their lives and we would love to see something else happening. 
It is recorded that as he drew near to the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus groaned in his spirit because he was so burdened by the ravages that sin had made in a believing family. He groaned, even though he would soon raise Lazarus from the, from the dead. So we groan in our spirits. We groan in disappointments, in bereavements, in sorrow. We groan physically in our pain and our limitation. Life consists of a great deal of groaning. I wonder if today that you can maybe relate to that as you think about the week that you've just lived or the situations and the burdens that you walk into this place carrying. Are you groaning today? Groaning is a very Christian response. In fact, I would say to you that only Christians can actually groan. Our groans reveal that we are looking at our problems this way. We're filtering them this way, and we're looking at them this way. And all too often when we look at our problems through the grid of Scripture, we groan because our life is so painful and things are not the way that we think they should be. But we groan Christianly when we anticipate a time when they will be all made right. And so groaning is the Christian response to sin in our life. Groaning is the Christian response to pain in our relationships. Groaning is the Christian response to Satan being the king of this world. Groaning is the, the, in community is the Christian response to when our brothers and sisters are going through a trial or a trouble. We groan with them. In the next section, Paul's going to say that the Holy Spirit groans. So far from being sort of unspiritual when we groan, Realize in the text here, creation groans, we groan, God groans. But we got to groan rightly and for the right reasons. And that's really the aim of the message today. How do we groan rightly? How should we groan? And Paul here has some qualities of groaning that I want to focus in on. And notice the first one is that we groan inwardly. Okay, we groan inwardly, the text again. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. Now here's what groaning doesn't mean. It, means, it doesn't mean that Christians, you know, we're all the time sighing about things. We're not that person at the, at the office who's all the time, <sighs> you know, and somehow admired as being virtuous. We're not the Eeyore at the, you know, at, the, at the New Year's Eve party. One more year until we're all dead. <laughs> That's not what it means. Groaning inwardly means that in spite of the pain and in spite of the troubles, we are awaiting glory. We are anticipating something far better. And that's why Romans 8 here says that we, we do so inwardly. And notice the clause prior to that statement. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we've seen in Romans 8, it's a chapter, it's a whole chapter about the Holy Spirit. And here's another example of this. We've already learned that he is the, the agency in adoption. And here he is described as the first fruits. Okay, that's a harvest term. He's writing to an agrarian society. They would have gotten and understood what first fruits are. We live here in Indiana. We're pretty good at this too, by the way, right? We have a lot of fields around us, and we can kind of understand this agrarian kind of language. The first fruit was, at harvest time, it was the first 
wheat. It was the first grapes. It was the first for us corn or soybeans. Why is that exciting if you're a farmer? Because it's an indication of what is to come. The quality of that first grape or corn is an indication of the quality that is to come. The abundance of the first fruit is, a, is an indication of the quantity that is to come. So you look at the first fruit and you get an idea of what the rest of it is going to be. And here it says that the Holy Spirit is the first fruit of God's saving work in us. It's just the beginning of what God has in store. Now to understand this, I've got a little chart here that I think should help. And we've used this before to describe the, the fact that we are living in this kind of in-between time. Okay? This in-between time where we have the, the kingdom of man, this world, which the Bible says is passing away. But then we have the future kingdom of God and eternal life, which we sometimes think is someday. But the Bible wants us to realize that when Jesus came, it was the inbreaking of the future kingdom in today's kingdom. That when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the power of God in this world at work was the sign that the kingdom of God is here now. And the gospel is the proclamation that the kingdom of God is here now. And so we live in this, like, the land of in-between. We live in this sort of in-between time where the realities of this broken and futile world we still live in, but we have presently right now the Spirit of God within us as a sign from God of all that is yet to come. And the, the, the tension of that and the dissonance of that, this is the land of groaning. We groan because we see around us all of this brokenness, but we groan redemptively. We groan deeply theologically. We groan gospelly and realize that we, the only way that we groan is by the Holy Spirit. Were it not for the Holy Spirit, we would have no sense that someday that there, things are going to be better than they are. Someday that God is going to do something to make this whole world new again. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we would view everything the way that the natural man views it. Which, read Ecclesiastes as a description of the futility of living in this world without the hope that God is going to do something someday. And Ecclesiastes just pounds home, it's meaningless, meaningless, life's like the wind, it doesn't matter. Everything I do, nobody's going to remember it anyway. Apart from the Spirit, we don't groan redemptively, we just groan. We just groan in the pain and the sorrows. And mankind, you know, we, the human race constantly trying to do what God's promised to do on his own. We look at the Tower of Babel as man coming together and saying, let's fix this world, let's do something, let's do it without God. In our modern world, we have lots of Tower of Babel type things where the sort of utopic vision of what humanity can be when we're all in harmony with one another. You know, that sort of, you can look at utopic uh, socialism or utopic capitalism or utopic whatever. Mankind fixing his problems, fixing the world on our own. The only way we groan redemptively is by the Holy Spirit being within us and by us understanding what God's true story and plan is for us in the future. And when I get that this is not the end and this world is broken but Jesus is coming, 
Now I understand how I can live in the dissonance of this world and groan about it, but not groan futilely, I groan redemptively. We call this salvation. Jesus rocks your world. You, you trust in him as your savior. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. And then I come to understand that Jesus is going to fix this world someday. Now this is not to deny that we should be salt and light in this world and that we should be very caring and loving for our neighbor and that we should try to improve uh, life and society as best we can. I, I like how one man says it, that Christians care about all human suffering, especially eternal suffering. And so for that reason, we feed the poor and we are hospitable to the stranger and we care about disease and we do what we can. But as we do this, we groan. We groan inwardly because there is inside us this powerful presence of God representing the fact that this is just the beginning. It is the foretaste of future glory. View it this way if you'd like. You know, I, I grew up in a Dutch family. Many of you know that already, but I just in case you're a visitor here today, DeWitt is Dutch, and I, I grew up in a Dutch family, and I've since come to find out that the Sunday tradition that we had seems to be sort of a, a tribal uh, tradition. Because on Sunday, almost every Sunday growing up, we would, we would have roast for lunch after church. And I remember this was, the, this was every Sunday in my house growing up, in the morning, mom would be working on getting the meat prepared. Dad would be peeling the potatoes. They'd put it in the pan. They'd put it in the oven, you know, slow cook all morning long. We'd go to church. And church on Sunday mornings lasted like, I don't know, three centuries, it seemed like. Because <laughs> there is no hunger that, that you feel like the hunger after going to church on Sunday. I'm sure none of you know what I'm talking about. So we would go to church and Sunday school and... By the time we were heading home, ravagingly hungry, like ravenous, crazy hungry. And to pull into the garage, in the house that I grew up in, the garage door, the, the house door in the garage opened right into the kitchen. And just week after week, opening that door and just being engulfed in the smell of that roast beef, it just, it made you want to eat the air. It just smells so good. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, that's what we're going home to. Would you get this sermon done? <laughs> so we would rush to go and, you know, we had to change our, out of our Sunday church clothes into whatever clothes in order to have lunch. And we'd go running back to the kitchen and mom's getting things together and dad's cutting the meat. Apparently that's a man thing. He's cutting the meat. And we'd gather around there and when he wasn't looking, we'd just sneak a little piece. Popping in our mouth. How did it taste? beyond description, right? It tasted so good. It was a foretaste of the feast to come. The Holy Spirit, by God's design, is a kind of foretaste of the feast to come. It's not all that God's going to give us. It's not all that God's going to do for us. But it is God within us as a sign from God of all that is yet to come. And so we are living in this time between the foretaste and the feast. We groan inwardly by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we groan expectantly. 
And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. You see that? We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Now you might say, wait a second, I thought two weeks ago we learned that we were already adopted as sons and daughters of God. And indeed, yes, it does. But here it says that we're waiting for our adoption. What does that mean? What this is indicating is something that we find throughout the New Testament, and that is that our salvation is both past, present, and future. We can accurately say, I was saved when Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I can also say that I'm saved right now. But it's also accurately to say that I will be saved someday when I stand before God and God welcomes me into eternal dwellings with him. I will be saved someday. We have a past, a present, and a future. And when it comes to adoption, it's like that. We are already adopted as sons and daughters of God. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been placed into the family of God. But when it comes to our adoption, there are aspects of that that we have not yet experienced. There is a future adoption when all the blessings that God intends for us that we actually experience them, our inheritance as co-heirs with Christ. Whatever God has in store to be in the family of God, we have not experienced that yet. And so Romans 8 says that we groan inwardly as we eagerly anticipate all that God has for those that are his sons and daughters to be our experience. We can't wait for it, is the sense of it. We are like children who wait with eager anticipation for everything. My daughters, I love it and honestly sometimes a little annoying the way that these kids eagerly anticipate things. I mean, whatever it is. How long till Christmas, Dad? Three weeks. Well, how long is that? 21 days. Well, how many days is that? 21 days. <laughs> 15 minutes later. How long until we get to open presents? I just told you. This is repeated over almost anything that they're excited about. They eagerly anticipate it. How long until family vacation? How long until ballet lessons? How long till we go to Chick-fil-A? I've already told you a thousand times. Why are they that way? Because they're excited about it. They can't wait. It's on their minds. We wait expectantly for this. We groan in our present pains and sufferings. But like children, weeks before Christmas, we are anticipating that these groans are not always going to be here. This is not a nihilistic or fatalistic groaning. It is a expectant groaning that things are going to be better. We groan with hope in the midst of our sufferings and our longings. Are you groaning with eager expectation? Which leads to the third kind of the character of our groaning, and that is that it's redemptive. Verse 23, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Notice, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. And here now we get to really, I think, uh, much of what it's going to be our takeaways from our message here today. Because it's one thing if we sort of are waiting theoretically or, or uh, conceptually for our adoption. But when it comes to something that we can very much relate to, how about your body? 
Yes, the body that you are in right now. The redemption of that body. Redemption's a word all throughout the Bible. It means to buy back or to pay a ransom, to be set free. It's used to describe what Jesus has already done on the cross, paying the price for our sins. But like adoption, we find here that redemption has a past, a present, and a future. And our bodies are part of that. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. When, when Adam and Eve sin, God curses Adam. Here in Genesis 3, here's what it says. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And we have seen this in Romans. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So death is the final payment for sin. But death is not just when I no longer am alive. Death also, we come to find out, is the process of dying. Which if you are alive, you are presently in the process of dying. You are decaying. So we could read it this way. The wages of sin are wrinkles. The wages of sin is graying of hair or the loss thereof. The wages of sin is the loss of flexibility and vitality. It is, it is the gradual and unalterable process of decline that all of us are in the midst of. Isn't this encouraging today? But again, let me ask the question. Who here looks better this year than they did last year? Nobody I'm looking at. But maybe somebody you're looking at. I joke. I remember the first time I saw a wrinkle on my face. I was at an airport. I was washing my hands. Okay, got the towel dry. You know, the mirror was there. I kind of took a glance, and I took like two steps, and I literally stopped. And I went back to the mirror, and I got up close, and I went up to my forehead, and I was like, I see a crease right there in my forehead. Where did that come from? I was so depressed. I'm like, oh, really? Now it begins, the wrinkles on my face. I dare you from now on to talk to me without looking at it. And I won't look at the Grand Canyon on your face either. We are all in the process of the. Yesterday, I went to a wedding. My best friend growing up's son got married. And so I'm at this wedding, and it's people, you know, from my past, people I haven't seen for a really long time. You ever go to something like this, like high school reunion maybe, or something like that, and, and you look around the room, and you're like, who are all these old people? <laughs> and you know they're looking at you going, who's that old person right there? Because everybody has changed so much. Why? The wages of sin is death. We are all, our bodies are all in the process of decaying all the time. And yet we look in scripture and we come to find out that God's plan for redemption includes our bodies. The body that you have right now is interwoven into God's plan for saving you. The body you have is a version of the body 
that you're going to have forever. Now, for some of you, maybe you're like, that's really depressing to me. (laughs) I was hoping for a serious upgrade. You're going to get a serious upgrade. You're not going to be disappointed. But God has a plan for your body. Your body is not inherently evil, or Jesus was not incarnated into a body. The material world itself, God called very good. And that includes our bodies. I love the quote from C.S. Lewis. There is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put new life to us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. So Christian, and what I'm talking about here applies to Christians, those that have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they've believed in him. We are earthlings right now, and we are going to be earthlings forever. We are in a body right now, and we are going to be in a body forever. And I think of all people, Christians should have a high and holy view of physical existence, And this includes the things that God declared very good in this world. Feasting, playing, marital intimacy, sensory, sight, smells, tastes, and a host of other amazing experiences that we have in this world. God declares them good. There's some versions of Christianity that kind of approach it like, if if it feels good, it must be sinful or it will lead you to sin for sure. No! It's a sign of God's grace and goodness to us. And we ought to be robustly pleasurable people and be okay with it and encourage it and enjoy it. But we're going to die someday. And so what is the answer that the Bible has for this reality that we live in this time of tension? Here it is. The Bible says that God's plan for our body is that we are going to die, should the Lord tarry, we are going to die Our bodies are going to be placed in the grave or blown up in war or whatever it was. It doesn't matter. God's power can overcome all of this. And that someday Jesus is going to return. And when he does, he is going to resurrect all of those bodies that died under his grace. He is going to redeem them and he is going to renew them. And you, friend are going to be reunited with a glorified version of the body you have right now. He resurrects the old body, makes it new, and brings the real us into a reuniting with our bodies. Here's 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Someday, that's what's going to happen to your body, Christian. And the Bible urges us to see this as a very good thing. Your body is going to be renewed and seriously upgraded. And there's the encouragement, because you might look at this and go, oh, great, I'm going to be short for all eternity. I'm going to be a brunette for all eternity, whatever it is, your thing. Listen, you're going to get a kind of makeover that when it's all said and done, you're not going to be disappointed. 
Nobody is going to be disappointed. So the, the big thing I'm trying to get here is I just think so many people view eternity as we're sort of in these, we're a disembodied existence where we sort of float around. And because that doesn't sound exciting to people who've only lived in a body, we don't look forward to what God has for us nearly to the extent that we should. But to understand that biblically, we spend eternity in a glorified body in a perfect place with Jesus, the new earth. And that this bodily existence is going to be everything we love about the body now with none of the stuff we hate. And that should be very, very good news. Now obviously we're not there yet. We all live in an old body. We all live in a broken world. We all deal with things like cancer, as we saw in the video, and a host of other horrible things and experiences that go along with life in this broken world. And so what do we do? We groan. We groan. But we do not groan as those who have no hope. We groan redemptively as we wait and that's the point, that's how Paul ends this here. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that's the last quality we have here, is that we wait patiently. We wait patiently. Here's, here's one way I'm convicted about this. I don't know about you, but as I get older, I get a, a, a sense of frustration about the fact that I'm getting older. Right? There's a wrinkle on my forehead, for goodness sakes. It's a sign of a whole lot more things to come. How do you feel on your birthday? Now, the young people here are like, awesome! Okay, you enjoy that. <laughs> because someday, you're not going to rejoice on your birthday as much. How do you feel on your birthday? In the world, this is a time for us to dress in black you know, sackcloth and ashes, one more day closer to my demise. We're depressed about it. And I, I have that sense in me, and this is where I'm saying I'm convicted about this, that truly, biblically, if I'm viewing things as the Bible would call me to view it, every day I live is one day closer to a whole better thing. Like, I... I I don't get excited about a day closer to the, you know, my dental appointment or my root canal. But like a child who's expecting Christmas, if I firmly believe that my eternity is better than my today, now this is a good thing. I'm one day closer to experiencing the fullness of my redemption. Now, we joke about it, and we'll, I'll, you joke with me about, you know, getting old, and I'll joke with you about already being old. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. As long as it's not really the way we're looking at things. One year closer, one day closer to my glorified body and being with my Savior. This is a good thing. It needs to be a good thing. Should we groan? Yes, we should groan. But we groan redemptively. Which brings me to the fork. 
Now, this is spring break. We got tons of people coming, tons of people going. Lots of you were here maybe this week, weren't here last week. So I told this story last week. I'm just going to tell it again. Story about Bob Brown, faithful, wonderful man in our church, Bob Brown. Longtime eighth grade teacher in Crown Point School System. He was one of those like pillars of the uh, foundations of the, of the community. Um, you know, coached basketball for like a century and football for two centuries. And everybody knew Bob. Everybody loved Bob. Well, Bob passed away. And we had the funeral, the viewing and the funeral right here. His casket was literally right here. Huge, tons, tons of people that came. And uh, as they filed by, they noticed that in Bob's hands, as he lay there in the casket, was a fork. Now, why do you suppose that he would want to do that? Well, this is Bob doing his final. He was famous in eighth grade for having these object lessons to teach things. This is the, his final object lesson as a teacher. And the point is this, is that when you're having dinner at somebody's house and the hostess is gathering up the dishes and all of that, if, if, if you know, the host family says, oh, by the way, keep your fork, what does that mean? It means dessert's coming. It means dessert's coming. The best is yet to come. And so Bob wanted a fork in his hands. And just imagine all the people filing by and saying nice things, of course, but then walking away and going, what's with the fork? <laughs> Bob wanted them to be thinking about it. What's with the fork? For Bob, the best is yet to come. And he was seeing even his moment in the casket redemptively. And so Bethel Church, keep your fork and view your life, even the dissonance and the pain and the suffering, view it through the grid of what God has promised and see that for us, the best is yet to come, the redemption of our bodies. Amen.